Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We're going to dive into uh, what has certainly been frustrating for many motorists across Metro Vancouver. This week started out on a very difficult note uh, around Metro Vancouver, and uh, the trend is continuing. Protesters from Save Old Growth promised to escalate their blockades to force government action, and they have done so and continue to do so. In fact, three protesters uh, arrested this morning at Horseshoe Bay. Yeah, more protests on BC highways. Uh, Yesterday's Vancouver Island protest actually saw one protester seriously injured after a frustrated motorist allegedly attempted to remove people blocking their way. So today, with a want to kind of dig deeper and forward this story, I was thinking maybe get in the psyche of protesting. So we're connecting today with Professor Ron Stagg. He's from Toronto Metropolitan University and an expert in political and mass protest movements. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. It's so great to be able to to discuss sort of what goes in to the mindset, not just with Save Old Growth or protesters we saw in Ottawa and at border crossings or protests anywhere, really. But is it, is it our collective imagination when we think protests used to be moving marches and standing before government buildings and, and making your message known that is, is sort of shifted to, to civil um, disobedience to the degree of, of blocking major highways in British Columbia? Highways, uh, railways, yes, definitely. Yeah, the, we did see prior to the pandemic, that was the top news story for a great deal of time is blocking of, of rail lines in protest yes. of, of pipelines. So what is it about these sorts of protests that, that, that um, I don't know, sparks the need to stand before? And, and we've seen it for, for decades in, in some uh, major ways. I mean, Tiananmen Square comes to mind with, the, with that image of, of one single person standing before a tank. This can bring change, and and and, but do they get governments to listen? I guess is my point. My question. Well, the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, protests obviously have gone on for a very long time, but they've changed uh, over the last maybe ten years, five years, in their nature. So, so protests are really about people getting frustrated. Somebody's not listening to us. We have to get our message across. So that's what protests are about. If the protests carry on and people get more and more frustrated, often there's violence. Sometimes by the protesters, sometimes by who, whomever they're opposing, who get frustrated and say, we've got to stop this. We've got to get rid of these people. What's changed is people are inspired by events to take a greater role. Yeah, we're certainly watching that unfold south of the border, aren't we? I mean, yes, very if much we want so. to broaden it out it, to... A, yeah, go ahead. It's spreading into Canada. Uh, some of what we see, uh, like the convoy in, in Ottawa, definitely inspired by things in the United States. 
But here in Canada, it's escalating on its own as well. Essentially, what's happened is uh, Indigenous people, First Nations, are inspired by events, whether it's things connected to residential schools, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, all these things where it looks like government's finally listening. And they've been joined by a a new generation, which generally can be called the, the woke generation, people who see that society's all about oppression and who feel they must do something to end this. And I mean feel. This is, this is an emotional thing. Right. So people will take part in protests who wouldn't in past because they now see this is part of a, a broader movement to protect society from oppression. So you've got these combination of things. So First Nations people, much more uh, inspired by what they've seen going on. We can actually do something. And then these other people, uh, old-fashioned social activists plus new people who who just want to save society from oppression. We're with Professor Ron Stagg uh, from Toronto Metropolitan University. He's an expert in political and mass protest movements. Now, there are many different protests that we have witnessed over the last number of months and years that have definitely uh, grabbed headlines. And you use the word woke. And woke seems to, for some, politically speaking, become a dirty word. And yet, I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, please, Professor, when you use it, it's about the need to engage, the need to step up. When the, the Greta Thunbergs of the world sparked, you know, worldwide uh, protests on, on the, the subject of climate change, just by sitting outside her school holding a sign in, in, in in quiet protest all by herself. The need to step up and join forces there. Um, we can we can name off a bunch of protests uh, similar to that. But the difference between a protest that is, you know, we're going to march from City Hall to the library or we're going to walk down, you know, the main mall in Washington. Uh, when does something like that turn to something like January 6th or like uh, a, an occupation, whether it's Wall Street or, or downtown Ottawa. Is there a difference in the mindset and the psyche between these different protests or is it all very similar, just a different action taken? Oh, how I see it is that things have escalated, that those protests, whether it was marching somewhere and uh, in Canadian history, there are a number of cases where there were marches that were quite violently uh, repressed. Uh, but now there's this added feeling that we can do something about it. Uh, for people who would not immediately be involved in a particular protest, but they feel they have to join because they can make a difference. So this woke idea, we can save, we can, we can uh, do something to eradicate oppression. It's both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the Me Too movement, uh, really good. But it got carried away and people were being uh, accused of things uh, that they hadn't done. And right. they were automatically considered guilty. So it's a combination, but it's a, it's a, a broadly based feeling that we got to do something. And sometimes it goes too far.
Yeah, interesting. Uh, it, certainly with the Me Too movement, I see what you're saying there. It was weaponized in, in yes. some instances because it was all about believing the victim. And some people thought, well, I'm going to be believed, so I'm just going to, I've got a, an axe to grind here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this to my advantage. And we see that politically uh, in the United States, certainly not immune to it here in Canada. The politics of protest comes into play. And when groups are used to... Un- under the guise or the disinformation piece of of the need to step up, the rallying cry of "you must," um, is is that fed by um, social media? The ability to you know uh, disseminate that information or disinformation to rally a, a, a group of people to to step up and protest. How does social media impact uh, mass it, protest movements? It plays a big part these days. Uh, the idle no more movement which was first the real um, nationwide indigenous protest. That was organized by younger people on social media. So social media can play uh, a, a good role, but also because of misinformation, uh, they can get people riled up uh, over something that isn't really an issue. I mean, some of the people involved in the Ottawa protest uh, were there because they had these ideas about government oppression and things like that. And I think most Canadians would say government doesn't oppress. It may go too far in some instances, but it doesn't uh, by nature oppress people. So so people read these things on social media and, and they get worked up and, and take part. So when it comes to the other side of a protest, as we're seeing here in Metro Vancouver, where a protester is, is, has cemented themselves to a highway, and the motorist is so frustrated that they decide they're going to take rather vigilante sort of action, is, is that new? Is that, is that something that we're seeing escalating, or is that something that's always been a part of it? We're just seeing more of it because everybody's got a video camera in their hand. It's always been part of it. If you think of the Oka crisis back in 1990, uh, where people outside of Montreal were protesting that they were losing what they believed was their land, another group south of Montreal closed the highway, and motorists were furious. It's exactly the same thing. A protest often uh, creates a counter-protest. Yeah. Uh, that is not unusual. The unfortunate part is that this sometimes leads to violence. As they say the longer a protest takes place, the more chance there is for violence by one side or the other or the authorities. Uh, it's a, a natural evolution, frustration. Very human. Professor Stegg, yeah. thank you so much for offering up your time this morning. Uh, it has been very uh, enlightening. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me on. Now we want to talk specific to the COVID-19 pandemic, where we're at on a global sense, where we are at in Canada and specific to here in British Columbia. Before we get hyper-local, for those who think the pandemic is over, the World Health Organization has a message for you. In many countries, all restrictions have been lifted and life looks much like it did before the pandemic. So is it over? No, it's most certainly not over. I know that's not the message you want to hear. 
we lower our guard at our peril. Have we ever gotten to know Dr. Tedros Adnam Ghebreyesus? Uh, that is a very caution, cautionary uh, statement from the World Health Organization. Uh, one of the touchstones throughout the COVID-19 pandemic for us here uh, in BC has been our next guest. Joining us once again is Dr. Brian Conway. He is the medical director at the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. Dr. Conway, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, Jody. Can you update us on where we're at with COVID-19 in our province? Well, we're slowly moving, I think, from uh, pandemic to endemic. And in my mind, we are in the endemic era of COVID. It is still around. There are still outbreaks. There are still cases being transmitted. I think that uh, COVID is not gone. We still need to be careful. It won't go away anytime soon. But if we're very uh, reasonable about how we behave, we're going to be able to live with it over the summer and be prepared for the fall. So living with it over the summer, it's a great relief at this time of year when most of us spend a better time outside. Our doors and windows might be open, uh, airflow, all of the things that you and I have talked about uh, over these last two plus years now. Washing our hands, uh, wearing a a mask when we're in enclosed public spaces with people we don't know, you know, being mindful about all the lessons we've learned over this last bit. But at the root of the British Columbian experience seems to be our vaccination levels here in this province. And I wanted to pick your brain, if I may, because I I legitimately don't know the answer to this question, which I get a lot. Friends, family, acquaintances, they come to me, what are you hearing about booster shots? And and how how durable is my two doses of vaccine? I had one friend say to me, you know what? I've had three doses in in two years. I'm done. I'm I'm not getting any more. So can we talk about how immunity wanes, what the durability looks like with varying degrees of vaccination, uh, and and the booster rollout, how it pertains to uh, British Columbians. Let's start with the the first sort of level of this. If somebody's had just one dose, Dr. Conway, uh, perhaps they got it um, late last year, where are they at today uh, with regard to uh, immunity? They're essentially unprotected, especially against Omicron. We know that vaccine efficacy is great at first, takes two weeks to build up, and then over a period of four to six months, wanes significantly. And at its root, this is two-dose vaccination. The initial protocol is this. So the one-dose efficacy will wane virtually to zero within several months. Okay, and then you get the second dose, which here in BC, we went to that four-month duration between dose one and dose two to hopefully give a little bit more durability uh, to that immunity, right? Absolutely. And that'll protect you for six good months, except against Omicron, where after about two months, protection of a two-dose regimen is not sufficient in a way that will uh, meaningfully impact transmission. So with Omicron around, it becomes a three-dose vaccination regimen to provide protection. I'm so glad you brought up transmission because so often uh, those who would lean into a reason to not be vaccinated is, see, you got you got COVID-19, you have two doses of vaccine, you still got it, it's all a big lie, it's all a big ruse. These vaccines don't work. What do you say to those people? I say that vaccines for covid are probably the most effective vaccines that we've ever generated or very close to it. 
The issue becomes that their efficacy is limited in time if they are not properly boosted. And the reason we changed our mind over time, saying it's a two-dose vaccine, no, it's a three-dose vaccine, and now many are saying it's a four-dose and then an annual revaccination, as is the case for influenza, is that right. we're learning on an ongoing basis. It isn't that we didn't tell the truth at first, it's that we didn't know the truth. And as we learn the truth, we tell the truth and we all go through this together. So no one lied. There was never a big lie. There was sharing in a very open and transparent manner all of the information that we had when we had it. And when we get new information, we share that. doesn't mean we were lying before. It means we know more now. It's like you've been building the Millennium Falcon while flying at light speed. This has been incredible to witness the science, the coming together of science, and having the the access to safe and effective vaccines, frankly. I am a three-dose uh, person. I am in my 50s. And, and now I'm wondering, when and how should I get a fourth dose? I've had a couple of people who in other jurisdictions, one friend particularly said, you know, if I lived in Hawaii right now, I would already have my fourth dose. Why are these vaccines expiring on the shelves while we could all get our fourth dose right now? And and my answer, my my partially educated answer was, I think it's about when we need it. If we get it too soon and then we actually need it in the fall, that durability through the fall, which will be flu and COVID season, um, you know, it, it sets us up for, for waning at the wrong time. That's what, that was my assumption. I'm like, I'm going to trust science. And when I get the text message that says, go get dose four, I'm going to go get it. So can you give us some perspective, Dr. Conway, as to, as to how that fourth dose might roll out for those who aren't over 70 and aren't, you know, living with comorbidities or, or at a higher risk immunocompromised people? Let me take a quick step back. 40% of British Columbians who are eligible to do so have not yet received their third shot. So our wow. emphasis over the summer right now needs to be to convince those people, most of whom have gotten two shots, that nice. there is a good reason to get a third shot as soon as possible. In terms of fourth shots, those of us that now think of this as, as a long-term collaboration, let's say, with COVID that we're going to have to have, are thinking of a yearly shot going forward that we will have it in the fall, we will have it at the same time as our flu shot, we can get them together. So in setting ourselves up for the timing, Jody, of your fourth shot, is let's try and do this this year, set up the model for the future. Get your flu shot, get your COVID shot at the same time. More people hopefully will get their flu shot in that setting. It'll protect us even more. And then we're set up, hopefully, that that cumulative protection of four shots will last us through the entire year and allow us to put this kind of model into place. So that's how I think about fourth shots. I am shocked that 40% of people haven't gotten their third shot. Eligible people haven't gotten their third shot. So there's two things. One is people are tired. They don't want to have to think yeah. about COVID. We've been doing this for two and a half years. We have done yeah, we hate it. more than yeah. could be humanly expected of each other. And let's congratulate yeah. ourselves on that. You can take a step back. It'll transmit less in the summer. We'll be more outdoors, as you said, uh, with less uh, indoor contacts, a large number of people altogether. And, and we will do okay. So you can take a couple of weeks break. If you don't want it this week or next week, you know, let's, let's just spend the month of July and August nice and easy and uh, waltzing over to your favorite 
place to get a vaccine and get your third shot. I mean, it's not, yeah. it really, it really is going to set us up for, for the fall. Because what I'm concerned about is we'll get to the fall. And as many expect, COVID will make a resurgence. And then we'll mm-hmm. have all sorts of people out there. People who got one shot, people who got two shots. And how do we deal with everyone? How do we, we, the logistics will be more complicated than they need be in terms of who needs what shot by when. However, if more people get three shots ahead of that time, it'll probably lead to a decrease in transmission in the fall. It'll make it easier for us to deal with the general population as we move forward with the vaccine program. All right. We're going to continue with Dr. Brian Conway. He's the medical director at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center, and we're taking your calls. And uh, Dr. Conway, I did also get an email from someone who says, Dear Dr. Conway, if I'm going to become a severely ill, guaranteed for over seven days with a flare-up of my existing health condition, MS, am I not better off just taking my chances of getting COVID, guaranteed sick versus maybe getting sick? Thank you. Unclear uh, in my mind if uh, the vaccine is associated with flares in underlying uh, diseases. I would only think that uh, this is a consideration if it happened with this individual's first or second dose. Please consult a trusted expert to discuss your situation as you decide how to proceed in COVID world. Uh, One more question from an emailer. Are the boosters getting tweaked to deal with Omicron? Very good question. By the fall, there will likely be a tweaked booster that will be even more effective against the newer variants. Excellent. Okay, let's get to the phone boards. Please keep your questions concise because, as I mentioned, we are fully lit up on our boards. Carolyn Suri, you're up first. Welcome. Yeah, hi. Um, Both my husband and I have had our three shots. My daughter has had two. She said she didn't need to get the third one because she she got... um, COVID. And I mean, I had COVID after my third. My question is, is, does it make a difference if you've already had the virus? Does it it help your immune system on top where we wouldn't necessarily need to get a third or a fourth shot? Great question, Carol. We can think of this both ways. First is that the uh, advent of COVID may boost your immunity. The opposite is possibly true in that the reason you got COVID is that you didn't respond as well as others to the vaccines you have already received. Current recommendations are that you follow the vaccine schedule, irrespective of whether or not you got COVID. There you go. Mark in North Delta, you're up next. Your question for Brian Conway. Uh, Morning. Quick question. Um, I've just had my fourth um, vaccination. I'm going to a celebration of life this coming weekend. I plan to wear a KN95 mask indoors. It's going to be about 75 people. What are the percentages of contracting COVID-19? wearing the mask hard to say although the situation well the mask protects though not a hundred percent because even when people were wearing masks fairly consistently we still had covid especially in the absence of a vaccine i think that it's reasonable to continue to wear a mask indoors with uh, large gatherings especially with people you haven't seen for a while that washing your hands getting all your shots staying home if you're sick obviously if anyone shows up at the celebration of life and it's sick they should attend it from outside, not enter the premises. We follow these rules, we minimize the risk of transmission. 604-280-9898, star 9898, a free call on your cell. Sharon and Burnaby, welcome to the show. Your question for Dr. Well, Brian Conway. the first lady kind of answered my first question because my daughter got her second shot, but it's since January they've had it twice now because they have kids 
in the household who are bringing it or were bringing it home from school. My question is, I'm over 70. I got my third booster in January, but I still haven't got notification to get my fourth one. And I'm wondering if we should be phoning somebody to say, hey, we're over 70 here and we haven't got our notification yet, even though we didn't get our third till January. Dr. Henry's uh, guidance right now is to wait six months before you get your fourth shot. So uh, your uh, notice may be coming soon. Uh, If you're really concerned, speak to a trusted expert. And there are exemption letters that are possible on an individual basis to get you your shot a bit earlier, but you're very close. All right, let's continue down the phone board here at 604-280-9898, star 9898. Jill in Vancouver, you're up next. Welcome. Hi, my question is, I've heard several doctors on the radio on CKNW, Mike had one on last week, that talk about infection-acquired immunity. What does um, your doctor think about that and recognize infection-acquired immunity? It's clear that getting infected does produce certain antibodies that we can differentiate from the antibodies that are generated after a vaccine. They are probably protective to some extent, but once again, we don't consider a prior infection as an indication to get less shots, to continue to get the same number of shots uh, going forward. We don't rely on infection-acquired immunity to provide long-lasting protection. All right, Brian in New Westminster, welcome to the show. What's your question for Dr. Conway? Brian? Yeah, hello. Uh, yeah, I'm in Surrey. Hello, you're on the air. Hello? You're on the air. Okay, I'm in Surrey. I'm not in New Westminster. Oh, okay, uh, you're in Surrey. Brian in Surrey. Sorry, yeah. it's a typo on my call screen. <laughs> yes, yeah, so actually, uh, one of the questions that's been asked is I'm almost 76 about when I'm going to hear about my first shot, which uh, you've already answered. So the other thing okay. that's brought up is that person going to that to do the funeral and uh, wearing a mask, the, the uh, N95, and uh, what what the doctor said about the coverage of it. But I just want to remind you that back in, you know, when the last season we had the flu season and the cold season, that a lot of people, the, the numbers were way, way down because people were wearing masks. So it looks you know, to me like the mask is still very important. Yes. Sorry to cut you off, Brian. We're having trouble hearing you. Um, Your phone is a bit muffled, so I'm going to send you back to your radio if that's okay. One more quick one here. I've only got 30 seconds, uh, Dr. Conway. I got Cody emailed. I'm a huge supporter of COVID vaccines. I follow the advice of the majority of medical professionals professionals. Having said that, I've not gotten the third shot yet. I was scheduled several months ago, eligible. I'm 36 years old, got COVID-19, had to cancel the appointment after a few days was okay, have not rebooked. Now it's summer, less COVID around, not to mention I have at least a small amount uh, more protection. Thinking about waiting until fall and winter to get my third dose. I would get your third dose now to set you up to benefit maximally from the fourth dose, which will be a tweaked vaccine that will be available mm. to you in the fall. I would do Dr. three Brian Con- now and then four. Yeah, three and now and then. Let's all get to the position where we can get our fourth dose collectively in the fall as uh, against many variants as we can possibly get and the durability lasts. Then we get into the seasonal feel of this, like you said off the top with getting our flu shot and our COVID-19 shot simultaneously. Dr. Brian Conway, you are forever a touchstone on this. I appreciate you taking calls as you always do. Thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure, Jody. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And the big news of the day, among many other headlines, is the fact that the federal government has officially announced the lifting of vaccine mandates. Yes, they're being dropped for travelers on uh, air and rail Uh, domestically, as well as those departing for international travel. There's a lot to unpack here. And to do that, we're very fortunate to have former Air Canada COO and expert in transportation, travel and policy, Duncan D on the line. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me, Jody. I really appreciate you holding on while we uh, threw to that presser for a bit. There's quite a bit to unpack here. I do want to note for those being in BC, being in Metro Vancouver, particularly this port city, a lot of cruise ships coming through here. It should be noticed, noted that the rules for cruise ships stay the same. The vaccine mandate still in place for travelers on cruise ships as well as crew on cruise ships. And also, Duncan, I want to point out that the, the federal plane ma- and train mandate continues for masking. So two important pieces of this puzzle. Also for international travel, like if you hop on a plane leaving as of J- June the, the 20th and you, you fly to the United States, you'll land. They'll say you need to be fully vaccinated uh, here. Uh, so at one end, you you don't need that, but on the other end, you might. This could get very complicated, couldn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, definitely uh, what's ha- going to happen is airline employees are going to be uh, asked to uh, police a lot of these uh, changes. Um, you know, on the one hand, they're saying no more vaccine mandate- mandates for domestic flights. And then on the other hand, um, you know, on your return, if you um, aren't vaccinated as a Canadian citizen, you have to file a quarantine report in the Arrive Can app. You have to be um, prepared to pr- uh, provide information, very granular information in the Arrive Can app as to where you're going to be staying and uh, when you're going to be testing. So it's a it's a basically a bit of a dog's breakfast in terms of uh, an announcement. Yeah, it kind of feels like, you know, people will be scrambling now while it feels like, oh, everything's open up. This is going to be so much easier. Will it, though, as you say, still coming into Canada, you will need your ArriveCan app. And if you're coming, uh, if you're uh, visiting here, you will still need to be fully vaccinated and be able to prove it. When it comes to the mask mandate continuing uh, on flights and and trains as well um and and cruise ships for that matter but on flights how has that unfolded in in your learned perspective um in canada whereas in the united states we saw that that uh, you know ruling out of florida that said no mask mandates on on air travel uh, will be dropped um do you see that continuing uh, in canada long term because the government did say we you know we reserve the right to uh, to revisit this and not hesitate to put these measures back in place yeah i mean on the mask mandate on planes they have uh, uh, just affirmed it today and that they're, they are intending on keeping it uh, for the foreseeable future. In terms of what's happened in the U.S. and the court ruling, I mean, as soon as that court ruling was made, masks effectively uh, became voluntary. And from my own personal experience flying in the U.S. Uh, since that time, about 
30 to 40 percent of uh, the, the, the travelers still wear masks um, and higher in certain regions. But, you know, the mask mandate in, in Canada, um, I think generally um, the government has not signaled any willingness at all to even back down on that. So June 20th, the uh, government now suspending the requirement for uh, vaccines in order to, to fly. And you said right off the top, and, and Duncan, I think it's really important that, that people are aware of the layer upon layer of responsibility that is being added to those who simply signed up to work for an airline. They didn't ask to become, you know, gatekeepers in this way. Oh, absolutely. I mean... Yeah, I, I think gatekeepers, Jody, is the perfect uh, term for it. And uh, you've got now these uh, airlines having to study these new rules and what applies to whom and when. And so it's going to add to some at least short-term complexity into the situation. And I, I just want to note, when uh, the minister, Minister LeBlanc, was talking about uh, the new measures today, he made it clear that none of it was going to affect the lines that we're seeing at the airports. And so it's great that the government is actually being honest and upfront about that, because what they've announced today, in fact, is not going to change the airport situation one bit. The only thing they've done which may help the situation is they're to ensure that their employees are vaccinated. Oh, we're having some, we're, we're having some difficulties. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Duncan. We're having some difficulties with your phone. You're kind of cracking up a, a little bit. So can you reiterate what you were just saying? Uh, I was just saying that the the, the uh, government has made it clear that the uh, announcement they made today would have zero impact on uh, the lines at the airport. And they're absolutely right. At, at least they're being honest about that because there really is no impact at all in terms of where they are, um, uh, where, whether or not the uh, lines at the airport are going to be affected by the rules that are being changed today. The one thing that players are no longer going to have to uh, enforce a mass uh, a, a vaccine mandate for their employees, so that may bring right. back some staff that were late during the the, the time that uh, the vaccine mandate was in place. So, with just a couple of minutes to go here, we're with Duncan D, former Air Canada COO, expert in transportation, travel, and policy. What do you think is at the root? of the chaos at Pearson in particular? I mean, every airport's feeling the strain to some degree of sort of a reboot of travel, uh, meeting this sort of endemic stage, we hope, of COVID-19. What's at the root of the, the chaos, particularly at Pearson, in your opinion? I think it's really the federal government was totally caught flat-footed in terms of where um, the um, uh, the staffing back to the skies um, and Pearson has been uh, has borne the brunt of it largely because Pearson is uh, the largest airport in the country and so um, you know you're seeing as well where the federal government just doesn't seem to have been prepared for the return of people to travel. So when the federal government bears some responsibility here, but also is, is there a struggle with regard to where the airlines are concerned, where baggage handlers or or uh, the, the people behind the scenes that are moving it or even like all the way up to uh, staffing uh, flights and, and, and pilots? Like we saw massive layoffs, obviously, when planes were grounded at the beginning of this pandemic and, and restocking, um, you know, that that's been quite a headline. Where are we with that? Where do you see uh, the industry? in terms of supply and demand with the workers that, that move this huge machine that is air travel? I think that um, 
as was announced today, the, the government is ending the vaccine mandate uh, for employers in, um, in transportation. So what that, that means is a lot of the employees who were laid off are hopefully going to be recalled. But whether it's going to be in time for the summer travel peak is an open question. You know, when they're talking about shortages in um, staffing, the only ones that were laid off were the ones who were unvaccinated. The airlines were actually quite good about keeping most of their staff in place. Um, you know, there were obviously some retirements and some uh, some folks who left the industry as a result of the upheaval. But, uh, you know, for the airline industry, the summer peak is like the Super Bowl. Um, you know, it's not like the Stanley Cup series where you've got seven um, games to prove yourself. This is, you know, the, the one game that matters. And um, I would venture to guess that most of them were uh, quite prepared until um, the huge lineups that we've seen at the airports for over 70 days now. Right. So pack your patience if you're headed to the Super Bowl that is summer travel. Duncan D, thank you for your time and your learned perspective. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jody. We shouldn't be afraid of what athletes have to say, because every time that something comes out, it's an opportunity to make changes and to be better. Canada's Sport Minister Pascal Saint-Ange emphasizing once again that the athlete voice is critical in changing sport culture in Canada announcing a couple of safe sport initiatives uh, over the weekend, in fact, including the creation of an athlete advisory committee within Sport Canada to amplify athlete voices. The minister uh, set a deadline of April 1st of next year for national sports organizations, or NSOs, to sign agreements to work with the new Office of the Integrity Commissioner, otherwise known now as the OSIC. So what does this mean from an athlete's perspective? We've all been hearing the stories, the horror stories, the abuse, the sexual assault, the, the bullying, the, the, the levels of sport uh, that we that we embrace in such a beautiful way in this country, marred by these this, this underbelly of abuse in sport. We want to connect now with one of the organizations who certainly has a reaction to these announcements uh, because this sport in particular has has been through so much uh, historically, systemically. I'm talking about gymnastics. Amelia Klein joins us from Gymnasts for Change Canada. Amelia, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm curious your reaction to how the Canadian government is is attempting to address what has been brought to the fore by by gymnasts in this country, as well as those in in soccer and many other sports, uh, even uh, junior hockey, for that matter, our, our our quote unquote most coveted sport, the defining sport of our country. There is abuse in in almost every corner of sport, and we're not immune to it here. Will these uh, steps change? where it needs to be changed? Well, I, I think the overarching reaction from the survivor athlete community to these announcements has been um, disappointment, uh, underwhelm. <laughs> it's, um, it's a first step, but some of these changes are, are sort of the bare minimum, um, requiring national sport organizations to meet certain safe sport requirements in order to receive federal funding that in 2022 that's already not a policy is a huge concern and certainly speaks to i think why we 
are seeing the crisis that we're seeing. So this is perhaps shoring up some gaps that already existed that were contributing to the problem. But these policy changes don't actually get to the root of the abuse problem, the systemic nature of these issues. Um, And we haven't really seen any movement from the government to do any sort of fulsome investigation into why these things are happening. I want to unpack both of those things with you as a former sports broadcaster. That's my caveat. Like, you know, growing up around sport, my dad was a, was a coach at a, at a major high school here in Vancouver. And, and seeing the culture of sport and when elite athletes are tapped to become the best, uh, the best in their field, the best in the country, the perhaps the best in the world, things can get... Uh, abusive very quickly, whether it whether it be on the demands put on a, a young individual or the the body or fighting through injury or pain or what have you, and and looking at what the government is is putting into place here feels like an after the fact note. Like where are the safeguards up front here? Another committee doesn't stop the abuse from having happening in the gym with the coach who believes that the only way to get the best out of their athlete is to abuse them. Exactly. And that's our main concern is that we know there are gymnasts and I remind everybody that particularly gymnastics, it's a sport of children. So we have children right now who we know are being abused in gyms across the country. And we're not seeing any sort of um, urgent policy change to address those things right now. We're seeing things that are going to take effect a year from now. Um, And we're not really seeing the pragmatic, on-the-ground sort of policy change that is going to actually protect children going forward. And and it can be a simple protection, uh, as I saw in one article, that that athletes and and perhaps Gymnasts for Change Canada uh, leading this. Like, can we not get scales removed from gyms where kids are learning gymnastics? I mean, this is not difficult. Exactly. And and quite frankly, I have had conversations um, in the last year directly with Gymnastics Canada saying, you have the power to remove scales. Stop weighing gymnasts. There's no point in doing that and you're causing harm. Why can't we just do that? If you did that, that would revolutionize the lives of gymnasts immediately. So there are certain things that we can do. Um, we just need the will to do it. And so far, we're not seeing that from either at the NSOs or from the federal government. We're with Amelia Klein. Gymnasts for Change Canada is the organization. You can find the URL using Gymnasts for Change Canada. Um, it's it's a great resource. If you are involved in the sport of gymnastics and you want to be in the know of, of where the guardrails are or should be and want to have an opinion on that, I, I highly recommend. Because we are talking about gymnastics here with you, Amelia, but also this, this broadens out to other sports like you. I can't believe some of the things that aren't in place. Uh, Recently, there was a ruling at the highest levels of figure skating that there be an age limit because the mm. we got to the point where it was prepubescent children who were being, you know, groomed to be future Olympians. They hadn't even figured out who they are and they were already mm-hmm. put in a position where they had to perform at the highest levels nonstop, even in the place of education. Yes. And that's um, unfortunately really common, especially in these sort of aesthetic sports, these sports where the attitude has been, well, if you are a young girl, that's when you're going to hit your peak as an athlete. Um, That's very much something that's prominent still in gymnastics and and especially skating as well, ballet. 
Um, and it really speaks to the vulnerability of these child athletes where you're being pressured to reach the top of your sport um, as maybe a teenager, sometimes even younger than that. Um, it's a level of pressure that children are arguably not equipped to deal with. If you could have the ability to enact one thing, where would you start? Oh, well, there's so many places, but um, I, I think... Give me your top five. Give me your top five. Yeah. I'm happy. yeah so one, ban weighing from weighing in gyms. That just shouldn't be happening ever. Two, yeah. uh, ban the practice of banning parents from being able to watch practices. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we see a lot of problems where if everything's done in secret and parents don't have the ability to watch what their children are doing, it just becomes a breeding ground for abuse. Um, mandatory education for coaches in child development and child protection issues. Um, have a child protection officer in each NSO um, or PSO for that matter. Um, someone that is tasked with making sure that children are safe and someone that they can report to who's trauma informed. Um, you know, these, these are not revolutionary. <laughs> this isn't No, hard. they should be in place. Um, yeah. These should yeah. be in place, but they're not. And that's kind mm-hmm. of the, the things that we are advocating for, including, you know, of course, a, an independent third party investigation into the sport as well. Um, but you know, 100%. some of these other policy, other policy changes could be implemented very quickly and, and could have huge change immediately. For the people that are listening right now going, what do you mean the parents aren't allowed to watch? Oftentimes in sport, especially when you get to the higher level, uh, coaches will argue that if if the parents are standing there, they're going to inject themselves. A la mm-hmm. King Richard with uh, Williams sisters, if you saw that movie. They're going to like interrupt the coach and say, or stop something if they believe their, their child might be uh, taking a riskier maneuver than they feel comfortable with. But at least with technology that we have today, closed circuit television, people, this is not hard. Like, let's put some cameras in the rooms. And how about we record it all so that we don't have to go on word of mouth, they said, we said, but actually laying out what uh, what the incidences look like. Make it all front and center. Amelia, thank you for leading the charge on this. I hope we speak again and have the opportunity to celebrate uh, some significant steps forward uh, by our government to protect our athletes. Absolutely. I sure hope so. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Gymnasts for Change Canada is the organization. If for some reason this has triggered something for you and you want to dive deeper in what's going on, I highly recommend that you uh, reach out to Gymnasts for Change Canada, uh, Amelia and and the team there uh, to, to, to see what's available for you in terms of reporting a discussion and what have you.